This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is Friday, March the 19th, 2021. Yeah, we had a rewind yesterday. If you listened to it, you know we did that because I was doing this show today and a bunch of rewinds for next week and some other stuff because all next week, TSP Spring 21... We'll be going on here at Nine Mile Farm. We'll have about 40 folks here, including instructors, and I'm going to be giving 100% of my attention to that, and I won't be able to be putting out new episodes or new videos or anything like that. It's kind of like that's one of those things that I have to do to serve that group of folks when they are coming here. Anyway, um, I got a good expert uh, panel for you today. We're talking about a bunch of stuff. I've got a quote of the day about science from someone many of you will have never heard of, and it's a guy you should know about, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. Jeff Lawton will talk to us about dealing with a high-nitrogen cattle pasture on a neighbor's property that comes down a, sleep, a steep slope, tons of nitrogen, but it ends up in bottom land that floods. What do we do with that? Jeff will give you some ideas. Dr. Ken Berry is going to give some advice, uh, specifically nutritional advice, to a person who will soon be donating a kidney to save another person's life. Nick Ferguson will talk to us about designing with micro-contour techniques on a mid-sized property. Tim the Toolman Cook will talk to us about advertising new services to your existing customers. And the guy asking the questions like doesn't want to sound desperate when he does so. Tim gives some good advice. This is what I'll have some follow-up on. Sean Mills talks to us about a deep dive into the world of lithium iron phosphate batteries. Next up, Darby Simpson will talk about calculating fig pig, uh, pig, sorry, feed pig, pig feed requirements when you're pasturing your pork. How do you know how much grain to feed a pig while you're growing it out somewhat on pasture, but you know it's not getting enough there? And proper disposal of medication that's expired and needs to go. We keep seeming to have questions about this. Doc is going to cover, like, what, well, when you do have medication, you got to get rid of it. What do you do? And should you be getting rid of it? All of that and more in just a bit. And I'm going to wrap things up with how we should handle the current crypto bull market. And specifically, what am I doing during this? Um, this is a really interesting question, and it's one I think that I, I don't know that I've ever really answered uh, in this context before. So I will try to give some context on what we should be doing with this sideways up, sideways down, up, down, up, down world where Bitcoin is you know, become a trillion-dollar asset, basically. It kind of goes into trillion-dollar territory and then back out and then back in and then back out. Um, my view is a little different now than it has been in the past, so we'll cover that when we get to it. Before we do, let's start out with that quote of the day. The guy that I'm talking about is famous not so much as a scientist, though he certainly was. He is famous as a plant breeder. His name was Luther Burbank. And you, when I read this quote to you, you're almost going to feel, if you've paid attention in the last couple of years of what's going on, that it might need a modifying word or two. But I really don't think it does. I'll explain when I, after I give you the quote. He said, the scientist is a lover of truth for the very love of truth itself, wherever it may lead. Well, this doesn't sound anything at all like the uh, science we're supposed to trust and have faith in that is settled 
today, does it? If you can't have science exist in a world where you say it's settled when there's any unanswered questions about a thing, you can't. Because you have to be a lover of truth for the very love of truth itself wherever it leads, including places you don't want it to if you're a scientist. This is why I feel that we do not need to modify it. Like when I first read this this morning, I was like, Maybe it needs to now say the scientist should be a lover of truth. But I don't agree. I've changed my own mind about myself, right? Because my belief is that many people that call themselves scientists today are not scientists. They may have a science degree. They may be doing a job in the science discipline. But if you do not love and seek the truth for the love of the very truth itself, you're not a scientist, You're not a scientist. It's like being a priest of a church, but not believing the religion that you preach about. There's a few of those out there, too. You're false. You're fake. And we, are, we have an a, a industry today, a scientific industry, that is full of fakes and frauds. And they're not even all wrong. They just don't tell the whole truth, and in some ways, that's worse. Because when you have a clock that's 15 minutes wrong, you miss your plane. When you have a clock that's like eight hours wrong, you know something's wrong. You look at it and go, it can't be right. And that's what science has become today. The use of truth and things that seem to sound like they make sense to sell a lie. Why? For money. For money. There's way too much money at stake if you give people the answer they're looking for today in science for it to be trusted at all. Science should be tested, not trusted. There's a quote from Jack Spirico. Science should be tested, not trusted. Share that with your friends and neighbors. Anyway, from there, let's go on and dig on into this. Um, let's start off with a question for Jeff Lawton on dealing with a cattle pasture neighbor. Steep slope, but the land the person owns is actually bottom land, so it's not steep. And it floods, and it just is lousy with massive amounts of nitrogen. And, of course, that's going to move us toward acidity. So, Jeff, what can we do with a piece of property like this? Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And we have a, a question from Kentucky. And it's uh, someone who has a lot of nitrogen coming off cattle pasture, which is 20-degree slope, which is really getting very steep to be cattle pasture. And at the bottom of that is an area that's flooded. So it sounds like if it floods, it's not 20-degree slope. It's quite shallow. And um, it's inundated with weeds. And it's hard for them to grow trees, uh, apart from an almond and different berry bush bushes. So this immediately indicates it's acid, and that'll be right if it gets a lot of manure and it's flooded. So high in nitrogen and flooding, which means anaerobic. And weeds means it probably doesn't get a lot of attention because it's a long way away. Otherwise, it would be a wonderful garden. But it must be a long way away from a house or anything like that and regular attention. So what we need is acid-loving crops, acid-loving trees, trees that don't mind inundating, and also carbon sinks. So things that can suck up that nitrogen. Willows would be wonderful. But there'd be lots of other things that would become carbon sinks to take up that nutrient and turn it into biomass. And that biomass then can be transferred into other trees as the roots take hold. Next up, Dr. Ken Berry with advice for a guy that I consider a hero without having ever met him. Donating a kidney to save another person's life. Hello, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today for Doug. 
Doug is donating a kidney. Uh, well done, Doug. Uh, you're going to save somebody's life by doing that. Doug is 36 years old and has been eating mostly paleo for the last 10 years and doing great on it. The doctors and his nutritionists for the surgery are telling him he needs to cut back on protein, fats, and sodium for the rest of his life. They specifically recommended eating lots of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. Okay, Doug, so here's the thing. The myth that eating lots of protein is hard for your kidneys or damages your kidneys is just that, a complete and utter myth. There's no research to support that whatsoever. Also, eating real human healthy fat and eating salt to taste there's also a myth that that's hard on your kidneys or damages your kidneys. Both of those also are a complete and utter myth, untrue, unfounded, no research to back those up. Think back to when you were a kid, Doug. How many dialysis clinics were in your town? If you live in a small town, there were none, right? Now, how many are there? One, two, three? Why are we having this epidemic of dialysis clinics everywhere and kidney failure everywhere? It's not because everyone's been eating a keto diet, a carnivore diet, or even a paleo diet for the last 20 years. It's because people have been eating a very high carbohydrate diet full of lots of whole grains, lots of fruits, and some vegetables. Uh, if you want to protect your one remaining kidney for the rest of your life, you would do very well to eat a proper human diet full of fatty meat, plus or minus some veg or berries if you want them. There is no research that supports their advice for you cutting protein, fat, and sodium for the rest of your life, I would recommend that you do not do that, that you would you would do uh, by well by cutting the carbohydrates as low as you comfortably can. The reason there's a dialysis clinic on every corner now is because there's a diabetes epidemic. Anytime you eat whole grains or lots of fruits like grapes and bananas, you're spiking your blood sugar, spiking your insulin, that's what's going to damage your kidney. You should avoid that. Thanks, Dan. Doug? Well, let me just add a little bit to what Ken said about dialysis and its relation to type 2 diabetes. He's 100% correct. I dare you to challenge him on it. I dare you to. Anybody out there that thinks it's not true, I dare you to challenge Ken Berry in any way, shape, or form that we do not have an epidemic of kidney failure primarily due to complications from type 2 diabetes. I dare you. Now, let me add to this. It's not just kidney failure that this is causing. I will tell you that by the year 2030, if things keep going the way they are, and they probably will, the number one cause of death in America that's not like old age is probably going to be complications. There will be different forms of it, heart failure, kidney failure, other organ failure, etc. But it will be complications from type 2 diabetes. Right now, obesity is, is right at the top of the list, too. But it's almost inevitable that anybody that's obese enough to cause themselves the type of health problems that we're talking about is also a type 2 diabetic. And they're also in something called metabolic syndrome. This is where the entire body's hormone system is out of whack. It's not just insulin and inulin. It whacks out all of the body functions that are based on the endocrine system. And type 2 diabetes is, is the root of what... So they're calling it now this metabolic syndrome. It's really type 2 diabetes 
as the cause, and it results in many problems like kidney failure. So the person has kidney failure. You don't have kidney failure because you have kidney failure. You have kidney failure because you have freaking type 2 diabetes and you're obese. And if it's not the chief cause of death, it probably will be. But if it's not, I guarantee you this, though. This I would bet money on. I'll bet a Bitcoin on it. By 2035, the single biggest expense on the balance sheet of what it costs for health care in this country is a total bill will be complications related to type 2 diabetes. And you think they want to fix it? I mean, this is back to me not trusting science and medicine anymore as authorities. Because money speaks louder than just about anything in the world today. So I want you to just just pause for a second and, and let go of any emotional concept here. And just think to yourself, if you were a very, very wealthy man who was in the business of providing dialysis services and you had ownership of a lot of these clinics that just Ken just mentioned about being on almost every corner and there was a way to stop type 2 diabetes and the resulting kidney failure from it and then all your clinics would be pretty much out of business because we'd have so much less of a demand would you be for it now I know emotionally you want to say yes But have you ever heard of somebody that was knifed to death in a back alley for $200? So what the hell do you think someone will do for $200 billion? Especially when it's, you know, they don't have to eat this much food. And you have a way to, 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 to mollify yourself and, you, you, you know, you, your emotions and say, well, you know, I'm just serving a need. And you don't think the same company owned big food, owns big pharma? No. I can't help you if you believe that. Let's move on. A new subject here. What about micro contour earthwork concepts? We've got a place where swales, the way we think of them, maybe don't make sense. But does anything make sense? Nick Ferguson checking in on that one. Hey there, it's Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com coming at you with another TSB Expert Council answer. I have been running around like a chicken with its head cut off trying to get all the emails and consulting requests coming in. Um, and honestly, I don't have enough time in the day to answer the emails and requests. I've got a stack way too high. So if you've emailed me, I apologize. In the past couple months, it's been insane. Just hang in there. I promise I will get to you in time, although it may not be timely. <laughs> uh, we should start shipping trees out soon. Received shipment from the growers and didn't want to send anything out in the middle of the week because, in my experience, that's when trees just get left in storage or get lost. The, um, the shipping has been insane, needless to say, over the past year. And it's still not that much better so hopefully most everyone's trees will be going out in the mail on monday and tuesday um middle of march i don't know exactly when this episode is going to be played so we went bigger this year and we still sold out after we get all the trees sorted and packaged i'll have an idea on if i have any leftover for mix and match packages so for those of you who are late to the party and missed out keep checking back over the next week or so for any available packages they're sure to go quick All right, now on to the question, and to be quite honest, this brought a bit of a smile to my face to read this when Jack emailed it to me, so I'll read it to you here first. Uh, subject line said, TSPC Expert Council comment for Nick Ferguson, Mark Shepard, or Jeff Lawton. Man, 
to be lumped in with those two guys, that's quite an honor to me. Uh, okay, so what principles or techniques can be used to micro-contour property encouraging or discouraging water retention as appropriate? I have four acres of land under high-voltage power lines, which means I cannot grow a food forest where easements exist, about one acre's worth. My house was built on a mound near an edge, so water seems to flow around it. Since I'm in eastern Virginia, the ground is frequently soggy. We get plenty of rain, so I do not think swales will be of any benefit. You're probably right. I would like to build amazing soil and keep it on my property. It seems like micro-contouring might be useful to me, but I really do not know what to do or how to do it, or even if it's going to achieve the goal of saving or building soil. Not sure if it's relevant, but under my topsoil I have a thick gray clay. On a side note, I did not notice Nick, Mark, or Ben Falk on the list of expert council members, but it seems I've heard them answer in the past. I do not know who would be the best expert to answer, and looking at the Meet the Expert Council page is a dizzying but amazing collection of talent and experience. Thanks, Mark, at scuttlebutt.farm. Yep, Mark, it is an amazing collection of talent, and honestly, I'm honored to be included in the lineup with greats such as Jeff Lawton, Mark Shepard, and Ben Falk. But to answer your question, since I don't have anything else to go on other than your regional climate and the description you gave, all I can say is most likely swells will not be much of a benefit to your situation. I could see where they might be a benefit to drop water into a pond to kind of uh, help moderate the amount of rain that is infiltrating into your system, but it's really hard to say. They'd be unlikely to return enough value to make up for the capital investment required to build them in the first place, given the amount of rainfall you have there. Uh, especially since you're saying you have a clay subsoil and you have plenty of rainfall in a temperate climate. It's not very brittle. It's, man, it's just beautiful up there. Um, so it's probably not going to be the most expedient way to go forward. I really hate giving advice on earthworks without seeing the location and really getting a feel for the situation and the scope of the issues and the elemental flows across the landscape. But I can give you some general principles and strategies for dealing with the type of problem you're facing. So whenever we have too much overland flow of water, it can sometimes mean poor percolation into the soil itself. It can sometimes mean not enough organic matter to act as a sponge. The mineralogical imbalances could be keeping the soil compacted versus airy, or just simply you're getting more rainfall than the system needs. So we can think about this mechanically with an engineering viewpoint and set up, like you said, micro-contouring with something like a two-bottom plow set up to plow a furrow in such a way that the second plow catches the furrow and throws both to the downhill. Normally they're set up opposite of that where one plow um, tosses all of the spoiled dirt into the bottom or right next to where the second plow has already plowed, essentially, you know, stacking them side by side. But if you flip-flop them or kind of reverse it to where the lead plow is catching and throwing into the same spot where the follow plow is catching and throwing, you'll move the material one time and then you move it a second time and you end up with kind of this kind of little if you looked at it from a cross section it's almost like a W like a curvy W shaped uh, swale ditch or this little curvy W shaped ditch um, basically 
you're going to catch all that material and throw it to the downhill. And essentially that creates a mini swale or terrace. It eventually kind of erode into looking about a terrace uh, type of uh, structure. It'd be about a foot wide and four to six inches deep. So if you go this route, I would first mark out your contours, or better yet, survey out the slope and drop the grade one to two inches over 100 to 200 feet towards the ridges from the valley. Now you can go a little bit shallower, you know, an inch over 400 feet. That's fine. But somewhere in that in that ballpark, this is not rocket surgery. You're just trying to get a little bit of a drop towards the valley. And this will preferentially soak water towards the ridges and dry out the valley slightly. This isn't going to make a huge impact, but little details can change and slant things towards a better solution. You'll end up with a tendency towards more um, homogeneous soil moisture between the ridges and valleys, and it'll reduce erosion and help in other small ways. And then you could plant shrubs and other woody perennials under those lines where you can't grow the trees. Uh, you could propagate things under there. Another possibility is to plant a series of fodder tree plots that will yearly be managed back down to four-inch stumps. You coppice them. And this would keep the trees at a shrub height during the growing year, and they'd never become an issue as long as you were managing them properly. Essentially, you could just bush hog them every winter, or you could go through and manually prune and cut a lot more carefully whatever you know suits your situation and with an acre under production you could grow a significant amount of high protein leaf matter to feed li feed livestock or honestly since you're talking about growing topsoil why don't you just simply chip it up and turn it into wood mulch for gardens and tree lines or chip up the material and put it all in Johnson Sioux bioreactors and make tons of amazing, beautiful compost and soil. You're basically going to be taking all of that solar energy that's growing those trees and turning it into soil really fast. Another option might be, depending on restrictions of the easement, is to dig long, shallow stormwater detention basins. See the specific language I use there. We build conservation terraces and stormwater detention basins instead of swales and frog ponds, respectively. You'll dry out the landscape a little bit with somewhere for the water to fall into, and it also increases the edge and biodiversity with a shallow water source for songbirds and amphibians. That would be awesome for biodiversity and would look great and you know depending on what your restrictions are you might be able to kind of dry things out a bit and make the property better all on those restricted areas that you can't grow trees the other thing you can do is take soil samples send them off to Logan Labs and find out what you're missing in your soils and I can 100% guarantee if this is unmanaged land that you haven't already recently remineralized, I can 100% guarantee I'd bet every single penny I have that your soils are definitely out of whack with several elements. Now, if I'm just guessing, judging by where you are, I'd say likely silica, zinc, molybdenum, cobalt, and selenium are deficient. And it wouldn't surprise me to find that calcium and magnesium are both out of whack, and likely also phosphorus and potassium need some correction in some way or another. So, if you were to get soil minerals into balance again, you would definitely see an increase in soil life. The topsoil would become more light and fluffy. The subsoil would loosen as well. And I know that that might not be as good of an answer as you were hoping for, 
but I can only do much sitting behind a microphone halfway across the country. I hope that helped, Mark. I'm Nick Ferguson with Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com. Do good things. Just on, you know, who is and who isn't on the Expert Council, um, Jeff Lott and Ben Falk are on the Expert Council. So is Nick Ferguson. I believe they're all on the Expert Council page. I may have removed Nick when he stepped away to prevent confusion for a while, so I may need to get him back on there. But the other two are definitely there. Um, I will say this, though. Occasionally, I get these questions for people that are not only not on the Expert Council, uh, and maybe I've stepped aside. So like Gary Collins, he did it for like three years. He feels like he's answered almost every question you guys could possibly have for him. Uh, and he just said, I've got other things to do. I'm going to step aside. Fine. You know, that's great. Um, but there are people that have never been on the Expert Council that somehow people seem to think are. That would be Mark Shepard. I have a great relationship with Mark Shepard. He's a really awesome dude. I've had him on the show several times. I'm sure we'll have him on again. I even wrote the forward for one of his books, but he's not on the Expert Council. And I wonder sometimes, like, where does that come from? <laughs> I've never been on the show ever as an expert. And just, oh, they maybe. And, and you know what? I will tell you this, though. There are people like that. Maybe they're not officially members, but I bet you if the question is specific to them, I could get an answer from them for you guys and bring them on like a, like a designated hitter in the lineup or something like that. So never fear to ask anybody that you know we've worked with in the past. Just if they're on the Expert Council, they should be on the Meet the Expert Council page. With that, let's go ahead and take another one for Expert Council member, one of our newest Expert Council members. Tim, Toolman Cook. And if everybody's like, why does he call himself Toolman? Because I named him that. That's why. <laughs> it's okay to have any nickname as long as somebody else gives it to you, even if it does conjure up images of uh, of Tim Allen. And, uh, uh, uh. Uh, but Tim Toolman Cook is going to talk to us today, not about tools directly, but how to advertise new services to your existing customers. Hey, guys. Toolman Tim here, coming back to you from ToolmanTim.co, where we build business, create community, find freedom, and share success. I'm back to answer another question for the expert council. So let's dig right in. This week's question comes from Matt in Virginia, and he writes, I have a question for Tim the Toolman Cook. Tim, what's the best way to market new services to existing clients without coming across as needy or desperate? Background, I'm currently working handyman jobs geared more towards commercial and industrial work. A lot of my work is small odd jobs in punch list items that clients' regular maintenance staff are too busy to handle. I would like to start offering a bundle of monthly and quarterly facility inspections, PMs, for items that are frequently on my clients' punch lists. How would you suggest these type of services without looking desperate or seeming like you're undermining their current maintenance staff? Matt, this is a great question. I find that I ask that question to myself a lot early on because until you figure out what kind of advertising works to your client base, you can always run the risk of being a little overbearing. We my wife and I would occasionally hire a local handyman for my adult kids a few hours away. And he was awesome. He always showed up, did it for a reasonable price, but would occasionally text us looking to see if we needed any trash hauled away or any other odd jobs done. It came across maybe as a bit desperate, a little rather annoying. So I just share that experience to let you know where not to start. So first off, remember, if they're existing customers, you already have an established relationship. You've built up some rapport with them, so it isn't like you're cold calling complete strangers. The first suggestion I would make is to develop an email list. As I fondly took Jack's advice a few months ago and started collecting emails because, well, I don't hate money. 
Send them out on a regular interval, monthly or weekly, whatever works. This is a great way to expose your customers to the new services you offer without coming out and saying, hey, you want to hire me for this? Another very effective way of doing this that works for me is just plain old conversation. If your situation works for this, I find a five-minute conversation with a client before or after the job is a great chance for soft advertising. At least 90% of the time, the customer will say something like, Hey, you keeping busy? Or, what have you been up to lately? And I always use this opportunity to mention a couple of services that I offer that this customer currently doesn't take advantage of. And quite often, they'll say something like, Oh, I didn't know you cleaned windows. Or, I didn't know you trimmed hedges. One of the best ways as well when making customers aware of new services is to frame it in the value they can receive from what you're offering, as well as show them the sense of urgency that could be involved. Quite often I can say, hey Bill, I'm starting to book my lawn aerating jobs. I try to do them all in a two-day period. You're a good customer, and your lawn certainly looks like it's a little bit more compacted than it should be. I have a few spots left on my schedule. You think you might be interested? Finally, and as much as you know I love Facebook, not really, their pay-to-play advertising model is still one of the cheapest and most effective ways to advertise locally. At one time, my Facebook page alone was enough to get the word out there for my new services. But as Facebook has moved to a more advertising-based models, I've gotten into using targeted, inexpensive ads three or four times a year. I typically do up a regular type of post with an eye-catching photo or collage of photos talking about one or two services that are coming up in the next month or so and that I'm booking for right now. The return on investment is great. I run it for a week or two. I set it to just my local geographic area. And, and for 20 or 30 bucks, I typically pick up two or three jobs or more. I most recently ran it for the uh, dog poop cleanup that I do and picked up two jobs from the one ad, which not only brings in that income, but has also brought in two new customers to my customer base. So just a little food for thought. And one final thing that's more specific to your situation, something I might try is a good old-fashioned bribe. Well, I mean coffee and donuts, that is. <laughs> There's no better way to advertise than through food. Take in some coffee or donuts or some homemade treats to the person that's in charge of giving you the work. That will earn you an opportunity to have a chat and mention, hey, I got a proposal for you. I know you guys are busy. I know your guys are busy and that they have more than they can handle. But I'm looking at expanding into some of these areas and I'm sure I can help with the overflow. The worst they can say is no. And in that case, you keep doing what you're doing for them already and try the next client. I know that's a lot in a little bit of time, but these are just a few tips that I found that work really great for me in advertising and doesn't really come across as, you know, too much advertising. So if you guys want to know more about what I do, go by toolmantim.co. That's toolmantim.co. Find all my social links, friend me on MeWe, follow me on Float, and join me over on FireOn. As well, I'm creeping up closer by the day to that magical thousand subscriber mark on YouTube. So if you don't mind running by and supporting me, that would be great. Keep the questions coming in to Jack for me about anything handyman-related, tool-related, or even being a solopreneur. And as always, guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I agree with everything Tim said about ways to do this, but I'm also going to say the original question and the concern about seeming needy and desperate, I, I, don't even th I think that's an issue in your head only. Because let me tell you how I view someone who I use for services that I routinely that I've like used before and I would use again. When that person says, I now also, you know, I know that you hired me to uh to 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 install your orange widgets, but I'm now also providing maintenance services for blue widgets. 
If I got some blue widgets that need some maintaining, you're getting the business. The second I know that you do it. In fact, the only way you're not going to get the additional business from me, if you're already a trusted provider of service to me, is that I don't know you do it. So that doesn't mean that if you send out like a text message or an email to all your customers, you're going to have orders just pour in right away for it. But what happens is this. Oh, so Bill does orange widget maintenance. I know who I'm calling next time I need something done for my orange widgets. Or when somebody's like, hey, I've got some orange widgets that need some maintenance. I'm going to be like, I know a guy. And I'm going to give you a referral because if I would use you, and I cannot overemphasize in this handyman type and contractor space how important it is to make your customers happy. And the number one way that you can do that is good communication. I've got a contractor that I gave a job to. They're doing another job right now. I was ready to throw them off my property. Lack of communication. wasn't even lack of performance. Lack of communication. Showing up in the middle of the day to do work with not letting us know you're coming, saying you're coming, not showing up, and not even a text or an email saying, hey, I can't get there today. That is awful. If you are, and so the converse of this is, since that's rampant in this whole space, when you are not that, when you are always there, when you say you're going to be there, or when you can't be, you make sure the customer is informed that you can't be. They don't even need a big, ex like, I don't want a long explanation. Just, I really can't get there today. I'm sorry, I'll be there, bye. And that can't happen too often, but as long as it happens that way, and then you do good quality work, You're in forever because everybody else sucks, right? This is a place that has so ripe with opportunity. So when you add a service and you have existing customers that are happy, the last thing you sound like when you reach out to them and say, we also offer this now is desperate. What you sound like is a relied upon trusted partner who now offers one more or two more or three more or a hundred more things. And I will give you every bit of business when I need it done if you're that person. And most people are exactly the same way. And the more people they've had let them down, the more true that becomes. And so one of the things I think really is important too is knowing when you have to turn work away. Because when you get overextended and you can't deliver, all of that gets blown up. And I'd rather have a guy tell me, I can't do it right now, Jack. I can't do it right now, Jack. I will get back to you if you can wait. If you can't, let me find you somebody to do this thing for you and start developing subcontracts or relationships that way. But if you're meeting expectations and exceeding them, you never sound desperate saying we also do fill in the blank. Ever. Don't even think you do. All right. Next up, Sean Mills with some information for us on the world of lithium iron phosphate batteries. Sean, take it away. Hey everybody, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com and I've gotten some requests to deep dive into the uh, lithium iron phosphate batteries versus flooded lead acid. So first I'm going to run through the money and then I'll talk about some of the non-monetary benefits. Uh, I'm going to compare the uh, GYLL LifePo 4 battery with a Duracell GC2, a Trojan T105RE, and a Trojan L16RE. The Duracell is your entry-level mass-produced battery that you can get at Sam's Club. Uh, great price point on those. They're only $90 with if you've got a battery to trade in to avoid the core charge. 
The Trojan T105RE is a renewable energy 6 volt battery. That's what I used to base most of, my, most of my systems on. And the L16 is the heavier duty, but also much heavier 6 volt battery, also specifically designed for renewable energy applications. So over its full life, the LifePo4 battery is less than half the cost of the best performing flooded lead acid battery. Uh, I did not include sealed or AGM batteries because their cost per unit of energy storage is higher than flooded lead acid. So by definition, they're not cost competitive. Also, you might hear me refer to flooded lead acid as FLA um, and the lithium iron phosphate as LifePo4. So I wanted to tell you that up front in case I uh, fall into that as I'm going through this. So for the purpose of our discussion, I'm gonna use watt hours which is the voltage of the battery multiplied by its capacity, which is denoted in amp hours. So our lithium battery has a 51.2 volt rating and 100 amp hours for a total of 5,120 watt hours. The GC2 has six volts and a 215 amp hour rating or 1,290 watt hours. The Trojan T105 has six volts and 225 amp hours or 1,350 watt hours. And the L16 has 6 volts and 435 amp hours or 2610 watt hours. So as you can see out of the box, the closest in capacity is the L16, but which is basically half from uh, 5120 to 2610. Actually, that's exactly half, oddly enough. Um, but, you know, with as I say all the time, with your lead acid batteries, your usable capacity is really only half of the total because you want to stay above that 50% depth of discharge. So in real terms, you're going to need four L16s um, or eight of either the GC2 or T105 batteries to match the capacity of one uh, GYLL battery. So now that we know how many batteries we need for equal capacity, let's look at the cost. The GYLL battery is about $1,500 and it comes with battery cables and communication cables for its built-in battery management system. Uh, so if you want to get you know, four, five, six of these things, you just literally plug them together and um, you can uh, monitor those with a computer and see exactly what each cell is doing in each battery. It's really slick. Um, the, um, sorry, the, um, so the cost for one is $1,500. Lost my place there. Uh, the cost per GC2 is $90, and but you need eight of those. So your total cost there is going to be $720, a little less than half. Um, the Trojan T105 is $140 times eight for a cost of $1,120. And the L16 is $356 times four for a cost of $1,424. Uh, so none of those costs include the um, cost of freight or cabling. Uh, these can vary by area and by your specific design, so it doesn't make a lot of sense to go into it for this conversation. But you can imagine the cost to cable and freight four or eight batteries is more than the cost for one. However, you might be able to find those non-lithium batteries locally. So as I mentioned, the GC2s can be found at Sam's Club, and you can typically get your golf cart batteries at a local battery store or at a golf cart store. As a matter of fact, um, for the off-grid homestead, I bought my first battery bank at a golf cart store. Uh, so now that we've got the total cost for similar battery banks, now we need to look at the total number of cycles. 
so from a practicality standpoint, let's assume one cycle per day. So we can utilize the number of cycles to determine how long the battery will last before it needs to be replaced. And that's really what they're talking about with cycles. So if, if we're talking about 50% depth of discharge, how many times can that battery go from 100% down to 50 and back to 100 before it dies, essentially? Um, so the L16 brings up the rear in terms of cost with 1,300 cycles at 50% depth of discharge for a total battery life of 3.56 years and a cost per day of $1.10. So every day that that battery you've got over that 3.56 years, it costs you $1.10 based on its upfront costs and excluding freight and cabling. The Trojan T105 comes in second with 1,600 cycles or 4.38 years and a cost per day of 70 cents. So the Trojan T105 lasts longer but it's more expensive than the GC2. The GC2s have the lowest cycles at 1200 or 3.28 years, but with the lowest cost, they come in at 60 cents of cost per day. Now for the lithium iron phosphate battery, it's rated for 6,000 cycles or 16.43 years, and that jumps to 7,000 cycles at 80% depth of discharge. So one of the things we talk about is you always want to design based on a certain depth of discharge, but the reality is you're probably not actually hitting that every day. But uh, you know, even at the full discharge, 6,000 cycles or 16.43 years gives you a 25 cents per day cost. So if you can afford basically double the upfront cost of the GC2 battery, you can have a battery bank that lasts over 16 years versus one that lasts only four. Now, a few add-on points here at the end. The money, the money side is is what it is. If you can afford the upfront cost, um, there's really no there's no comparison. Um, but in addition to just the money, the LifePo 4 batteries charge and discharge more efficiently, meaning more of your solar generation gets into and out of your batteries and into your house. So you always lose some capacity from your solar through your charge controller into the batteries, and then when you convert it back out and put it into your house. Um, but because the LifePo batteries are so much more efficient, we're talking 95 to 99% versus 80 or so percent for FLAs, um, you can actually do more with less. They also charge faster, and that means that a full Sunday can, a full day of sun, can get you to a full charge with less solar capacity than with the FLA batteries. So what we're saying there is with less solar, you can get to 100% every day. And with lithium, you're not penalized for not getting the battery back to 100% every day. So when I design a system that's gonna be based around flooded lead acid batteries, I've gotta figure, okay, here's how much you're gonna use from the time you're using more than the sun's producing until the next day, and I gotta get you back to 100% every day or your batteries aren't gonna last as long. You don't have that problem with lithium. Uh, you also don't lose as much capacity when discharging faster as you do with FLA batteries. So to sum up, not only are you they more cost effective over their life, they require little to no maintenance versus monthly or more maintenance with flooded lead asteroid, but they can also provide better results with less input. Um, as a final point, I haven't done these tests myself, but there are tons of YouTube videos showing test results from FLA and lithium batteries that show that FLAs deliver less than rated capacity, while lithium delivers more than rated capacity under, like I said, quite a few different tests. Um, as I've said before, it's pretty clear now that the LifePo4 batteries are the way to go uh, for off-grid or hybrid systems if you can afford the larger upfront costs. And if you can't, 
I would definitely go the cheapest route. I would go the GC2s and uh, bet on the come a little bit that in three years, uh, the LifePo 4 batteries are gonna be even cheaper. So uh, thanks for everyone that reached out and asked me to do a little bit of a deeper dive on those uh, lithium batteries versus the flooded lead acid. And uh, I hope this answer um, takes care of your questions. I don't think I'm going to add to that one is when I tells you I brings you as an expert, I brings you as an expert. Uh, anyway, moving on from there, let's talk about something totally different. We've just talked about storing energy, being able to rely on it long term. Let's talk about feeding piggies. So you got yourself some piggies. You're going to grow them piggies into bigger piggies, and you're going to put them on pasture. But uh, you know you ain't got the kind of pasture that's going to make them pigs grow. You're going to have to feed them. Well, how do you calculate the feed that you give them where you grow them to the size you need and the time that you need them done because time is money, but you also don't overfeed them so they do rely some on that pasture and they eat, you know, they eat some of that natural pasture as well. And what is it is not good for is for pigs with that Darby Simpson. Hey there, everyone. Darby Simpson of Grass-Fed Life back with another Ask Darby question. This one comes in from Dan. And Dan wants to know, how much pig feed do I need? Now, here are the particular details in his email. I am looking for some guidance on how much feed four pigs will eat from the time they are 50 to 60 pounds up to 250-pound butcher weight. I am planning on feeding them a 16% grower and a 14% finisher. I'll be housing them in a permanent pen as well as rotating them in the cedar forest we have access to. Not expecting them to get much in the way of nutrition from our forest as there aren't any nut trees that we've identified, but there is grass and brush that I'm hoping to have them clear. I appreciate any insight you can provide. Well, Dan, um, let's uh, let's talk about the uh, the pig weight you mentioned first. I think you're you're spot on there when you're looking for wiener pigs, uh, and that's what I suggest you do if you've never done pigs before. Don't get into farrowing. It's expensive and it's difficult and it's really hard to justify the cost. Um, 50 to 60 pounds is about the perfect size. And I'd say that's about the minimum size you really want to get. It makes them easier to train to electric. Up to 250-pound butcher weight, yeah, that's on the lower end. I would encourage you to maybe think about 275, 280, even up to 300 pounds. Your uh, your chops and your bacon are going to be nicer. But starting at... 50 to 60 pounds, basically what you can plan on if they've got access to feed is they're going to gain about 50 pounds per month. That means you're going to want to have them around for at least four months, probably five months to get them up to a nice butchering weight. Now, as far as your feed conversion is concerned, um, you know what, let's back into this. Let's say that you were raising them in a barn and they had access to zero uh, grazing or foraging. The old rule of thumb that the old timers taught me to use was four pounds of grain to one pound of gain. So if we wanted to put 250 pounds on each one of these pigs, we'd take that times four. That's a thousand pounds of feed times four pigs, 4,000 pounds. You got two tons of feed. Um, now, in a pasture-based system, typically what I planned on in my system was I, I would plan for about a 3 to 1. 
three pounds of grain to one pound of gain. I assumed they were going to get at least 25% of their intake from rotating them around. Uh, Generally speaking, we saw something closer to like 2.5, 2.75. I do want to caution people about nuts. Yes, nuts will really help you cut down on the amount of feed you give your pigs. If you have nuts available when you're running the pigs through that area, and if they are nuts that the pigs will actually eat. For instance, I've got a lot of black walnut trees. Uh, The pigs will play with them, and occasionally they'll eat one, but by and large, they don't eat walnuts. Uh, I've got a lot of red oak trees, and I ran my pigs under those red oak trees. And some years you you get a wonderful mast, and some years you get zip. So I'd be very careful about assuming uh, what you might might be able to get under there with nuts. Um, <clears throat> we did have a, a bumper acorn crop one year, and my pigs were behind, and I was looking at the dates and I, the butchering dates, and I told my wife, I'm like, man, we're gonna we're gonna lose our shirt on these pigs. Like they're just I, I goofed up. They just don't quite have enough time. To finish, but you know, when you're working a year plus in advance and scheduling butchering dates and finding feeder pigs and the whole nine yards, like it's hard to be super accurate. And if you're off by three or four weeks, it can make a big difference, you know, 50, 60 pounds. Well, these pigs were behind. We have this massive acorn drop. And those pigs, I'm not kidding you, that last five to six weeks, they cut their feed intake by probably 80%. And they didn't gain 50 to 60 pounds in a month, they gained like 80, 85. Because of the acorns. So it can have a huge benefit, but here's here's what I'm saying. Don't plan on that in your spreadsheet. You know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. Um, <clears throat> I think for most people on pasture, a three-to-one ratio is, you know, that's a good uh, point of planning. In your situation, you mentioned that you've got this cedar forest uh, we've got some cedar forest on our farm, and <clears throat> I think it's because of the cedar trees themselves and the uh, byproducts that they put off into the soil. There's not much that grows in a cedar forest. I mean, there's just very, very little understory vegetation in those areas. Um, <clears throat> Dan, if it was me, based on what I know and my experience, I'd, I'd probably plan on about a 35 uh, to one ratio. So three and a half pounds of feed to one pound of gain on your four piggies. You do the math. Um, they'll gain once again, if you get 60, 70 pound pigs or they're going to gain 50 to 60 pounds per month average over the course of at least four months, probably five months would be better. Uh, you mentioned using a 16% grower and a 14% finisher, here, here's what I'm going to tell you. <clears throat> you want to be really careful with too much protein uh, on, on your pigs. And I'm not saying 16 is too much, but you're at the upper end uh, for a pig that size. Whatever feed you're having mixed up, uh, you should have some some kind of a neutral balancer mixed in, whether that's a Fertrell product or Helfter feeds. We, we've used Helfter feeds for over a decade, really had good success with them. Follow the recommendations of that mineral balancer from the manufacturer for the protein percentage needed for your pigs at various stages of growth. Uh, Generally speaking, 
We ran ours at about a 15%. And then uh, we'd get them up to about 125 pounds and we'd drop it um, down to, to like a 14 or a 13. So just pay attention there. <clears throat> I think that that's a, a pretty good plan. And anything you can supplement them with, if you can get, you know, some some squash, whether that's summer squash or winter squash or uh, other vegetables and things of that nature to, to dump in there, that's fine. Personally, I'm not a fan of feeding them, you know, Wonder Bread and donuts and, and things of that nature, but um, <clears throat> they will pick through a lot of that stuff and, and eat it up. Uh, not all of it. Not all of it. Uh, I planted turnips one time for pigs, and pigs don't like turnips. And, uh, you know, turnips uh, rotting in the winter with uh, pigs running over them, it's not a, not a wonderful smell. So, Dan, that's what I've got for you. I hope you find this helpful. Hey, uh, if you would like to get an answer from me uh, in a short segment format, shoot me a question. Darby at grassfedlife.co. And you might just hear your question on this podcast. As always, thanks for sending these in. Keep them coming. Happy to answer these questions for you guys. Take care and good luck with your farming this year. All right, next up, Doc Bones with another round about expired medications. And when they do need to go away, how do you get rid of them? Doc, take it away. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of award-winning books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert council comes from Chad in San Francisco. San Francisco, <laughs> very good, Chad, who writes, Hi, Doc Bones, I recently found a few bottles of erythromycin that expired in 2019. With it suddenly harder to get antibiotics, should I dispose of it? And if so, what's the best way? Or could it still be used? It's been stored at room temperature in the dark. Thanks. By the way, love your book, and I've asked everyone in our group to add it to their group standard list. Wow, thanks so much, Chad. Appreciate it. If your medicine cabinet is full of expired drugs or medications that you want to get rid of, there's more than one way to dispose of them. The DEA actually sponsors a National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day, this year it's April 21st, in communities nationwide where some police stations even will take your expired drugs. The DEA also has drug take-back locations year-round in many municipalities. Just Google DEA Drug Take-Back and then do the search for the nearest one in your zip code. Mine was about four miles away at a local pharmacy. Where a take-back location isn't an option, there are a couple of ways to dispose of medicines at home safely, depending on the drug. The first, and a little controversial, is flushing medicines. Because some medicines could be harmful to others, they have specific directions to immediately flush them down the sink or toilet. Some drugs you really don't want in the water system, though, so check out the FDA's flush list to see what should and what shouldn't be flushed. Drugs that can be flushed have been shown to be negligible in their risk to the environment. Don't flush any medicine that isn't on the flush list. Disposing medicines in household trash is another option. Almost all medicines, except those on the FDA flush list, can be thrown into your trash. These include prescription and over-the-counter drugs. Remove the drugs from their original containers and mix them with something undesirable, like let's say used coffee grounds or kitty litter, in a plastic bag. 
scratch off the name of the drug and your name from the container for privacy purposes. And the FDA prefers that you don't crush, by the way, pills or tablets. Chad, what about if you prefer to keep expired drugs just in case there's a disaster and fresh medicines no longer exist? What happens when these drugs pass their expiration date? The short answer is, in most cases, not very much. Pharmaceutical companies have been required to place expiration dates on their products since 1979. But what does that date signify? Officially, the expiration date is the last day that the drug company will certify that their medicine is fully potent. Some believe this means that the medicine in question is always useless or in some way dangerous after that date. This is a false assumption. Expiration dates pertain to the strength of the medicine, not whether it causes effects that are hazardous to your health. You will not grow a horn in the middle of your forehead or drop dead simply because a drug has expired. Most drugs don't suddenly lose all their potency just because they reach their expiration date. What evidence do I have to say this? Years ago, the U.S. military commissioned a study regarding expiration date. Consider their situation. In warehouses all over the country, they had huge amounts of funds invested in drugs for the strategic national stockpile. Every two years or so, they were faced with the challenge of disposing of mass quantities as these drugs expired. To their credit, they began to wonder if this represented a waste of useful meds. This led the government to begin studies that could determine if it could extend the life of its massive inventory. This evaluation, done in conjunction with the FDA, eventually became known as the Shelf Life Extension Program, SLEP. It tested more than 100 drugs that have been expired for 1 to 15 years, respectively, and found that 90% of them were still fully potent and considered safe. These medicines were mostly the ones in pill or capsule form. The exceptions were liquid medicines nitroglycerin, insulin, epinephrine, antibiotics in liquid form. These in general lost their potency soon after the date on the package. This data can be hard to find, by the way, but it is online in the July 2006 issue of the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Even more incredibly, in 2012, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, found cases of 14 different medications in a retail pharmacy in their original unopened packaging. These cases were labeled with expiration dates 28 to 40 years old. And guess what? 12 out of 14 ingredients were at least 90% potent. These results can be found in the October 2012 issue of Archives of Internal Medicine, a highly respected periodical. As such, even the government will issue emergency use authorizations for expired drugs when the fresh ones are in short supply during epidemics and other emergencies. Chad, planning ahead, we've got to consider all the alternatives in the effort to stay healthy in hard times. Don't ignore any option that will help you achieve that goal. Of course, do your own research and come to your own conclusions. That is what you should always do. In the meantime, get fresh meds while they exist. In the future, I'll talk about how to tell if a med has degraded and the proper storage of meds to get the longest shelf life possible. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, please consider supporting our mission by getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at store.doomandbloom.net. Also, subscribe to our many social media presences, including our new survival medicine group on MeWe. Thanks again. All right, so time for my anchor segment today. We're going to talk about investing in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin a little bit differently than maybe we ever have 
before. This comes from Nick in Mongolia, a long-term listener and member of the community. He said, what are some reasonable investing and profit-taking strategies to use during this cryptocurrency bull market? And maybe more importantly, what mindset are you using when approaching your crypto portfolio? Details, the crazy crypto ride the past few months caught me and my portfolio by surprise in a good way. So I'm trying to form a new strategy for short-term crypto profit-taking later this year, anticipating the next 5 to 12 months might give us something a little like we saw in 2017, 2018. This is my only my second crypto bull market, and it's the first one where I've had significant amounts of crypto in it. Grab onto the roller coaster bars, dude. Um, so I'm a little short on experience and useful advice. Beyond a rough plan to dollar cost average sell this summer and fall until there's enough to fulfill my tangible asset wish list and pay future expenses, I'm not quite sure how else to proceed. And this is very real potential for U.S. tax increases in the future years. Just complicates things further. I understand nothing you say here constitutes investment advice. Good. And all investing decisions are my own. But hearing how you and others are balancing short and long-term objectives during this wild ride, even in just general terms, will be helpful for some perspective and seeing things I may be missing. So I'm in a place with crypto right now where I don't have simple answers to questions like this anymore. Let me tell you what I've done over the years with crypto. First of all, let me just give you my allocations. I'm not going to tell anybody how much I have of anything. I think that's dumb, but I think percentiles is a, is a reasonable bit of information for people to have. Without getting into decimals here, I'm about 53% Bitcoin. I'm about 35% Ether, and the balance is in various alts. Those alts include Pirate Chain, ARC, Library tokens, because I get paid in them, Bitcoin Cash, and, and I've added Algo to, uh, to my alts. Over the years, I have found certain alts, when I say alts, I mean lesser than Bitcoin or Ether, that I think have potential. Most of them that I invested in did very well, with the exception of ARC that I'm still holding, and now it's doing okay from where I went in originally. And when they did well enough, I dumped them, went into another alt, And if I didn't know where to go, I either parked that in a stable coin and waited if I thought Bitcoin was going to come down, and then I bought Bitcoin when it came down, or I went ahead and bought Bitcoin. I also do something that a lot of people don't, and I've been advising people to do it for a very long time, and that is I sell something for Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in general. When somebody pays me with crypto, it depends on how much they're giving me and what they want to spend, what I do. If they want to pay in Bitcoin, they're buying a year of MSB for 50 bucks. I just have them send it to my Bitcoin wallet, one of my Bitcoin wallets. All right, I give them an address, send it here, done. If they're going to buy, like sometimes when people say they want to pay in cryptocurrency, I'll do a special deal. I'll say like I'll do three years for 100 bucks. That makes it enough now, even with Bitcoin's inflated prices, that you can deposit it on an exchange. And if I have a an alt coin that I feel like I'm stacking that a little bit, like I'm doing with Algorand right now, I may have them deposit that directly onto an exchange account for me. And then I'll exchange it into that alt currency, and I'll move that alt currency off to my own wallet. That's pretty much how I handle money in. It either goes straight to Bitcoin, or it goes into an alt that I'm building up. And I build alts up to a certain point, and I say that's enough risk mitigation, that's enough additional risk, that's enough additional upside, and everything else goes to Bitcoin. Over the years, it's gotten more and more everything goes into Bitcoin. The only reason I have as much Ether as I do is I bought it when it was stupid cheap and I bought it with Bitcoin, okay? And, like, that's just made it, like, really easy to hold it because I think, I think, I don't know, I think Ethereum is going to come out 
the other side of this two-year cycle with Ethereum 2.0. I think it is going to be a valid, workable, low-cost transaction, much faster proof-of-stake model. And when they do that, I think Ethereum becomes at least a $10,000 asset. I really do. So I'm just, you know, that money's there. It didn't really cost me much to get into it. It's just there. The other alts I am into mainly because of what they do and what they could potentially do. I don't think I would be buying library credits in any significant quantity if I wasn't active as an Odyssey library producer. By the way, library.tv is going away and everything will be Odyssey. And thank God, because that just ends the brand confusion. So good job to Jeremy Kaufman on that. Um, but I've kind of gotten one over on how well it works as a currency because I'm in an activity that is conducted in it. But I have taken a lot of my library tokens, sent them over to an, an OKYC exchange, and bought, and pirate, bought Pirate Chain with them. Uh, my single largest holding in alts right now is Pirate. I'll even give you that. I'm about 5% in Pirate. Everything else is you know, single digits or two or three points. Um, and it's because I, I, I believe that long-term privacy is gold. But the number one asset that I hold is Bitcoin. And if you were going to get involved with cryptocurrency today and you said, I don't want to learn a lot of things, what, what, what should I do? I'd say dollar cost average into Bitcoin. Buy every dip you see. You know, buy every dip you see. Basically a modified DCA where you just buy dips. This is translated into, I do a lot less trading now. There were times like when you know, Bitcoin would be at like nine grand, it would go up to like 12 grand. I'd sell a quarter of what I had. And as soon, I, it's, as soon as I sold it, I would put in a limit order to buy it back right about, you know, where I thought it was going to drop back to, just so I could have more Bitcoin. I don't know what's going to happen, and I don't know that just because Bitcoin jumps up 10% today that it's going to go down 10% tomorrow anymore. And I'd be really careful with how much of it you play with. So I've gone to now, when somebody sends me a currency and it's not something I want to hold, I'll get it in on exchange, and I'll put it in a stable coin like Tether. And I'll build up a few hundred bucks there, and I'll play the, the movements with that. And if I can do it two or three cycles, I convert it to Bitcoin or another alt that I'm stacking and off the exchange. I only run two or three cycles, and then the next time that, that, that kitty builds up, I'll do it again. The stuff that I'm holding, I am now in a freaking holding pattern. I don't care if it goes down. I'm not trying to eke out another profit. I'm telling you that I think you could have a day that you wake up and the market's dropped 25 points. But I think you could also have a day just as easily the market goes up and, and it doubles. And it doesn't ever come back down. It doesn't ever come back down to where it was when you dumped it. And I don't want to be on either bad side of that. I believe in the long-term value of Bitcoin at this point. I think we're hitting the point that I talked about for years, and I said this would happen, and you sh everybody should have a little bit, because we would hit a point where a little bit would become your biggest piece of wealth you could possibly have in your hands. And we're there for most people that got in early now. There are people that, you know, they live in a, a $65,000 house. They've never had a job making more than thirty grand in their life, but they bought a little bit of Bitcoin a while ago, and they're millionaires just because of Bitcoin. And I don't even think we've begun to see what will happen in the long run. Remember, we're in a place where this, this asset cuts itself in half every three years. We just had a halving about a year ago, I guess. So we're, we're heading, we're two-thirds, you know, one-third of the way to the next halving. And 
we now have major brands coming into this, and we have at the same time literal suicide behavior of the world banks. Printing money like, I mean, even like, I think like Ben Bernanke, you know, would be like, you're doing what? You're doing what? What? You know, Mr. Mr. Printing Press, you know, back in the Obama and Bush days, right? He'd, I think Bernanke would be like, what are you doing? What, what the hell? Good Lord, what are you doing? And so you put together this movement of major corporations, retail investors, etc., along with this declining available source. And I think that you're looking at long-term, and I know people don't think I'm crazy here. I think long-term you're looking at a Bitcoin being worth a million dollars. And I know people think, well, if I trade and I can get some more, if you believe in it that much, buy it. And I, I'll tell you my biggest mistake in all of this, I've never really bought much of any. Because I sell things for it and I get referrals, I've built everything I have, not everything I have, but most of what I have, I've built from receiving, saving, and trading. And I wish I would have bought more. I felt like I have it coming in, why do I need to go spend money on it? Well, I probably should have. And, you know, I might already be on the island of Jakistan by now if I, if I did. So I'm not doing a lot of trading, but I'm also okay with if I wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin's 20 grand, I'm okay with it. It doesn't even affect me. I have no plans for the money in the short term or even the midterm. This is long-term strategy for me. And, and I believe we are, we are heading for a world where we are looking at million-dollar Bitcoin. And all you have to do is some basic math that works out this way. If every millionaire decided they wanted some Bitcoin, of the Bitcoin that's available, Every millionaire could possess potentially about 0.2 to 0.3 Bitcoin, depending on how you do the math. That's just the millionaires. That's not counting corporate, you know, corporate uh, entities that have billions of dollars that are sitting in cash reserves right now. While cash is being devalued at about 15% per annum, that's your real inflation rate now. It's about 15%. If you put, you know. $1,000 in the bank, it's worth, by the end of the year, about 850 bucks. You can't even, in my opinion, you, as a corporation now, you can't even really deliver shareholder value in that situation. And I think the majority of large corporations are going to park at least some of their assets in Bitcoin. I think you're going to get an ETF this year that is going to open up the IRA market, and I don't think it'll be long after that that... You know, you're going to have to let the 401k people in on this. And if you do that, it's over. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be a million dollars in a day or something like that. But, I mean, you're talking a quarter million, a half a million bucks and stable there. Because you, it's math. And it is this argument that it's not the best form of digital money has become an innately stupid argument. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You could make tomorrow a cryptocurrency that's better than anything we have, that's, that, that's faster than Algo or Cardano, that's more private than Pirate Chain, that works on a light wallet that you can install in 37 seconds on your phone, and you'd have something great. It's still not going to unseat Bitcoin. It's not. I've accepted that. It's been hard for me to accept. I'm always the guy that wants to play the devil's advocate. So my strategy is mostly doing nothing, 
buying a little bit more here and there when it makes sense, and converting that which I receive mostly into Bitcoin or other alts. My most bullish alt, again, is Pirate Chain because it is the most private coin there is. That's why. There's no other reason for it than that. Uh, it's also All of them have done fairly well as well. The one I actually think has the least potential is something that's going to be worth a lot of money someday. Sadly, is Bitcoin Cash. And there are diehard adherence to this thing like it's it's really someday it will be the bitcoin no no it won't there's nothing bitcoin cash can do that some other altcoin can't do the only thing it's worth what it, the only reason it's even worth what it is today is because it has the bitcoin name if, if you had built bitcoin cash exactly as it's built right um but called it you know something else it wouldn't be worth 500 600 bucks it wouldn't be in that range It just would not. So there you go. I mean, I know it's not a straight up like, hey, when it gets here, trade to here. When it, I can't, I can't give that kind of advice, and I really can't do it anymore because I don't advise people to do things that I'm not doing myself. Even I can't even get hypothetical on it anymore. I, I really can't. I would just say if you feel that you're at an ex excessive high. And you want to divest of some of it to buy it back. Be careful how much. I don't remember the guy's name, but he's one of the biggest, you know, public Bitcoin holders out there. And uh, he's worth, you know, millions, if not, you know, a billion dollars in Bitcoin. And when Bitcoin hit $25,000 earlier this year, he publicly announced he sold half his Bitcoin. And his reasoning was, it's not because I don't believe in Bitcoin anymore. It's because I believe that this point is as expensive as it is. We should treat it like any other asset. And when you make this kind of a gain, you capture some of your gains. And when it goes back down, I'll buy more. Have you looked at it since it crossed 25 grand? Will it ever go back to 25 grand? It could tomorrow. Is this going to be a good play for this gentleman? Probably not. Half is a lot to gamble with if you have significant holdings. I'm talking more like 5-ish, 10% on these trades, and you can do well with. Remember then the tax consequences as well. Also, the last thing I want to hit before I leave this is understand when you do and when you don't have to pay a tax consequence on a crypto asset. If you buy it and hold it and it goes up to a gazillion dollars, you owe absolutely no money until you sell it, and then you only owe money against that which you sell or trade. So if you spend it or sell, because when you spend it, you technically have sold it. So when you so if you if you put a certain amount of money in a Bitcoin, let's say two hundred thousand dollars, and a year later it's worth a million dollars, you're whoever you you're, if you're holding with Coinbase, right, and they send the government all your tax information, everything about you, and a picture of you petting a dog with a Bitcoin hat on, you still owe the government zero dollars because you haven't converted any of it to another currency, you haven't sold it. So the idea that you know we're going to have this higher tax rate, maybe I should get no. If you believe in this long term, what you can do is take only what you need as you need it, and you adjust the tax consequences there. My other thing is you can bet your ass when the, when the, when the, when a true Bitcoin ETF opens up, there will be some in Jack Spirico's Roth IRA because then it can do whatever it wants forever, and they don't ever get to tax it. And I want you to really think about that when you think about the long-term implications here. 
$21 million, that's all they'll ever be. There'll be less new Bitcoin every year from here on till the last one is mined. We know that. It's one of the very few things that you absolutely know. I was listening to Michael Saylor today, and he was honest when somebody said, well, is there anything that can derail this? And he said, anybody that says you can't have some sort of black swan event is, is either a liar or stupid. And I agree. There's always something. Don't bet the farm. But if you've built the stack already, write it. I really mean that. I really mean that. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, I do not have an item of the day for you today, uh, as I am in a condensed week. This is actually Thursday, even though you're hearing it on a Friday, most likely. Um, but I will remind you, you can help support the show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. You can also become a member of the MSB. This is a great deal. I believe in investments, and I think when you pay 50 bucks for something, and you get like $110 worth of discounts over the next year because of it, that's a good investment. It's not Bitcoin money, but it's pretty damn good money, and you get to support me and the work that I do. And it doesn't really actually cost you any real money. So please consider both shopping through tspaz.com and becoming a member. And if you want to become a member, I do take cryptocurrency for it. I will be very happy to. I will take almost any cryptocurrency. I think I've had two people in the last three years that I've said no to what they wanted to pay with because any they I did not want to hold it. And I have like three exchanges I use, and none of them were listed on any of those three or four exchanges. And so I couldn't convert it to something else easily. I'm like, no, pretty much if it's on major exchanges, I'll take it. Because even if I don't want it, I can turn it into something I do. So crypto is good for MSB. With that, let's go ahead and listen to our final Moody Blues song of Moody Blues Week. And I don't know about you guys, but we didn't even play some of these the, the Moody Blues songs. And they've been stuck in my freaking head this week. Um, Nights in White Satin has been stuck in my head. I know you're out there somewhere, has been stuck in my head. I mean, just over and over and over and over. I've been I've been singing other songs in my head to, to clear it out. And like I said, some of them we didn't even play. Um, this one, though, is one that I really, I don't know that I even ever heard this song before. And it was a pretty big song for them back in 1970. Of course, I wasn't born yet. It was another two years before I was born. But it's called Question. And what this song is about is how people were feeling by 1970, especially in the college scene, about the Vietnam War. And looking at their life and thinking, all this protesting, all this resistance we've put up, has it been worth it? Has it mattered? Has it made any difference at all? And, and, and as they were getting older... And getting closer to graduation where they no longer had a deferral from the draft and then would have to potentially be conscripted, what do I do? I, I think that people look back at that time and think, you know, draft dodgers run the candidate or whatever, and that there were just two camps. People that willingly, absolutely, I'm going to go. Or maybe I don't really want to volunteer, but if you draft me, I'm absolutely there. It's my duty and people that completely were on the other side of it. There were a lot of people in the middle. There were a lot of people in the middle, young men who had a sense of duty, but also completely disagreed with what we were doing in Vietnam. By the way, the intelligent people completely disagreed with what we were doing in Vietnam. I'm so glad I wasn't 18 years old in the middle of Vietnam War, because I would have joined. I was that stupid. I was so much a patriot that I was a blind patriot. Serve my country. It's a big part of why I joined the Army when I did. 
I grew up in a military family, and I had that in my mind that this was the thing to do. There were a lot of people that had that in their mind, but they also had a broader view of what the hell was going on and realizing this was a disaster. And we had men dying, and we were killing people that had nothing against us, and we had no business there. But they also had a sense of duty, and I've been called. And part of this song is about that conflict, that concept of what do I do? What is the moral thing to do now? And then beyond the morality, what are the consequences of doing the thing that I think is moral? Going to jail? Having my life destroyed? What if I do go? What then? People thinking that, like, I don't want to kill anybody. I don't want to be part of killing anybody. What do I do? I'm supposed to do what I'm told. Question. Well, things are different than they were in 1970. But being faced with questions of morality versus some sense of civic duty will never go away. And how we answer them must be at the individual level. With that, we've wrapped up another week. Again, the rewinds next week. Hope you enjoy them. That's been Jack Spirico, another edition of the Survival Podcast. Thank you.